Hello and welcome to another episode of Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Mike Prashan. I teach English at McEwen University, and this, uh, this episode was a lecture that I gave to my students in the winter of 2021 in a course on 100 years of the horror film. We're looking at the 1950s with the 1958 hammer horror picture, Horror of Dracula. Deciding on a film for the 1950s was a little challenging because there are a lot of really great films out of the United States in this period, most of which are a mix of science fiction and horror. Uh, the, the, I think the, one of the best of these is Howard Hawks's version of uh, the movie that you know, we know as John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, which in Howard Hawks's version was called The Thing from Another World. Carpenter references it a bunch. But because we're going to be doing Carpenter's The Thing later on, I thought, nah, we don't really need to do uh, that, that earlier version. It'd be a really cool comparative study, uh, but we don't really need to look over it as, as a, an entire film. A lot of these movies were working off of a fear of the bomb, uh, fear of the atomic bomb, atomic energy. We get movies like The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms where uh, a giant radosaurus, you know, terrorizes a city and uh, inspires all sorts of other giant monsters like the giant ants in Them um, or the more obvious uh, inspiration uh, for Gojira. A direct line back to the beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Um, definitely a precursor to Gojira. Uh, one of the big differences, of course, is that um, American filmmakers and audiences didn't really have an idea of what the atomic bomb could do. And you can see this in the way that people react to Geiger counters in movies from the 1950s, where, you know, somebody's like, ah, oh, this area is irradiated in a in an American film. I mean, they make a radioactive bullet. They basically make an atomic bullet to shoot the beast from the beast from 20,000 fathoms. Whereas in Godzilla, they, they're using a Geiger counter and they go, Oh, this entire footprint is, is uh, radioactive. And everybody goes <gasps> and backs up really fast because the Japanese knew what the atomic bomb could do. And so, um, Godzilla's probably got a, a stronger, um, sense of horror to it, even though we would look at it and find the special effects potentially hokey. We're like, ah, rubber-suited monster. How come he's not fighting anybody? That's because that first film really was a metaphor for the bomb. And Godzilla himself, the creature, um, apparently the, the design for the costume was in some ways built off of uh, radiation burns. They, they looked at the, you know, the way that the skin would look uh, from radiation burns and, and went for that with the modeled surface of the monster. At least that's, that's reportedly what one of the production design moves was. Uh, but we get, so we get giant monsters, but we also get the Incredible Shrinking Man, and then we would get the attack of the 50-foot woman. So again, in America, they didn't really know what atomic energy did. So it's like, ah, it creates mutants. It does all sorts of crazy stuff. We don't know what it will do. It's so unpredictable. Um, but it was always a, you know, what man ought not to tamper with. A little bit more of the Browning Frankenstein, or not Browning Frankenstein, sorry, Wales Frankenstein, and then Bride of Frankenstein, you know, what man ought not to temper, uh, tamper with. Science gone mad uh, in movies like The Fly as well, uh, where, you know, 
experimentation leads to a guy ending up with the you know a, a pincer hand and a giant fly head uh so those those were some of the so just some of the movies that were coming out of the united states and at, at this period one of the other things that characterizes the 1950s at least uh in the united states was the rise of the teen audience and movies targeted at teenagers. Now, it's not that teenagers didn't go to movies prior to this. It's just that we see a, a distinct rise in the number of teens attending films and those films targeting them in particular so that we end up with movies like I Was a Teenage Werewolf and it's uh, not quite a sequel, but it's another film made by the same company and it's basically I Was a Teenage Vampire, which was called Blood of Dracula. This rise of the teen pick, though, is one of the things that led me to not choose uh, Gojira or The Thing or Them, The Fly, etc., uh, because you know that's gonna that's gonna move us into uh, our 1960s choice, Night of the Living Dead. As we're moving up towards that drive-in movie experience uh, and midnight showings that were so popular with older teen audiences and uh, college-age university audiences as well. One of the products that was hugely successful with this teen audience was a film made not in America but in Britain. It was called The Curse of Frankenstein. It was made by a company called Hammer. And they'd been around for a while. They weren't new in the motion picture industry, but horror was new to them. Britain wasn't really known for horror. They had made a few... Uh, British filmmakers had made a few uh, horror films. Um, I mean, Boris Karloff was British, but he only made one picture in Britain in in the, you know in the time that he was making he was just churning out movie after movie after movie in America um so you know horror wasn't really done in Britain and then hammer saw an opportunity and decided to not reach forward with a science fictional approach to horror but to reach back into the gothic horror that universal had capitalized on in the 1930s um and they chose to do a frankenstein picture and it was the first fully color horror film made in Britain. It was distinct from a lot of teen picks, uh, many teen picks, many horror movies being made at the time because it had a pedigree to it of really great, uh, by way of comparison, other horror movies, really great writing, uh, imaginative art direction, really strong cinematography coming from the experienced filmmakers at Hammer. This was not their first time out. It was just their first horror movie. And the director of many of the, the Hammer horror movies, Terrence Fisher, has been celebrated as one of those auteur directors, one of those directors whose you know vision was, was pushed through over and over again. Um, I don't know that that's totally true. I, I very rarely ever subscribe to auteur theory. Um because films are almost always a collaborative effort. And in the case of Hammer, they, they, they were as well. It's not to downplay Terrence Fisher's vision. He certainly was a great filmmaker, was a great director. Um, but uh, I, I wouldn't want to overstate that. But there was this pedigree to the production of Curse of Frankenstein that came from the seasoned veterans making a color horror movie for the first time. And they also brought to the film uh, the this duo 
of Peter Cushing as Dr. Frankenstein and Christopher Lee, who you may know as Saruman from the uh, Lord of the Rings films, as the creature. And over and over again, Cushing and Lee would be in film after film after film in Hammer Horror with each other, almost always pitted against each other. They were Shakespearean trained, stage trained. And here they were bringing that training to this shocking, sensational, what we might call an exploitation film. And let's just understand what, what was meant by exploitation film at the time. There's a few things happening historically here in film in America. One was the Paramount Decree in 1948, which compelled major studios like uh, Universal, like Paramount, um, to divest themselves of their cinema chains to encourage industry competition. So in a previous lecture, I talked about how these, uh, these major studios not only made the films, but they distributed them as well through their own theater chains. So they're monopolizing uh, this situation. And the Paramount Decree said, you can't do that. We got to encourage uh, competition. And so the theater chains were taken away. And this, plus a shift in audience demographic, here comes the teens, um, plus a decline in censorship practices, and we'll get to that in just a moment, uh, the major studios were concentrating their resources on expensive blockbusters to entice people away from their televisions, because television was huge in America. Not as being in Britain, um, people were watching, for example, the Todd Browning 1931 Dracula on TV in America. Uh, whereas in the UK, uh, Lugosi's 1930, uh, I say Lugosi's version because I mean, we, a lot of us would associate Bela Lugosi with the 1931 universal versions that, you know, classic blah, blah, blah. Dracula is what we get from Bela Lugosi. Uh, and that had been making the rounds as recently as 1955 in theaters in the UK. And this is also something about film history that you may not know is that, um, back in the day, we've got this thing that, you know, you hear every now and again, where they say, Disney's going to bring a film out of the vaults. I don't think they're going to say that anymore. Now that we've got Disney plus as if we're ever going to hear Disney's bringing something out of the vaults again, but it wasn't so long ago that Disney would bring a film out of the vaults and then they would release it on, on home video. Prior to that, if Disney was bringing a film out of the vaults, they were legit bringing film reels out of vaults and touring them around again. They would go through the theater. So before we had home video, movie, certain movies, really, really um, popular movies would would go back through the theaters or the, uh, sometimes local theaters would order older movies as matinees. I saw a lot of old movies at at Saturday and Sunday matinees at, at my local theater growing up. You could see some of that stuff on TV, um, but there was just as good a chance that, that they, could, they could fill a theater with a showing of an old uh, Japanese monster movie, uh, old horror movies like these ones, which by the time the 1970s and 80s had rolled around, were no longer really all that horrifying. Um, so uh, British audiences had seen Lugosi's film like three years before, Horror of Dracula would be released. So there's a really, really strong memory of that film. But the major studios were concentrating on big budget blockbusters because that's what was going to get people away from their TVs and into the theaters again. And enter exploitation cinema. And what, what, was, what, was, enter, what was exploitation cinema exploiting? It was exploiting this relaxed censorship code. Uh, they were 
exploiting a situation involving you know the 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 the, the big studios not being interested in that particular demographic um and th- these were teenagers like Martin Scorsese Martin Scorsese apparently has said, if we saw the logo of Hammer Films, we knew it would be a very special picture. If we saw the logo of Hammer Films, we knew it would be a very special picture. They set a mood with absolutely striking photography and you were drawn right into it. So there there you have it from a teenager who went into film that there was something special about what was going on with Hammer Horror um, that was distinct from what was going on in horror, in teen films at this time. But this was a cut above. It was set apart in some way. Um, so if we're going to, if we're going to talk about Hammer films as quality, we want to think, um, and here I'm quoting, uh, Peter Hutchings and Peter Hutchings, by the way, was the man, the late Peter Hutchings was the man when it came to academic study of Hammer horror. But this is what he had to say about quality and these films. Quality here does not refer to any cultural status, but rather to a certain care taken with the production that separated the Hammer films from their generic. And here we don't mean generic in a sort of like it's all the same, but genre competition, competitors. A reader's letter to a magazine at the time called Films and Filming said about Horror of Dracula, this film is in the Oscar class compared with some of the awful, cheap, uh, quickies supporting films which have been churned out recently bearing an X certificate. So we might look back on this stuff and see it as exploitation cinema, as cheap knockoff sort of crap, but we have to understand it within its context. We have to understand it within the, the, the arena in which it was competing. And it was something else. It was something distinct. It was something that hadn't been seen before. Um, web writer Amy Vaughn says that there's a, a sort of um, long ago and far away aspect to these films, which was, you know, is distinct again from what was going on in America with the let's look to the future into science and what's going on with science, even though Curse of Frankenstein is ostensibly another one of those, oh, we ought not to mess with science and, and whatnot. Now, you'll notice that if you, if you look at a, a, some of the posters for the Curse of Frankenstein, that it got a X certification. This film was rated X. Now, when we think of X-rated films, I don't even know if anybody thinks about X-rated films anymore. Um, But when I was growing up, if you were talking about an X-rated film, you were almost always talking about porn. Um, But this was a certification that had come as a result of the, this relaxing of censorship codes in the United States. But those censorship codes were not getting relaxed in England. Now, back in the 1930s, um, the British Board of Film Censors had come up with the H designation. H is for horror. No joke. I'm not kidding. If your film was filled with horrific imagery, if it was horror, it got an H. Um, and Britain banned a lot of movies that were made in the 1930s and 40s that we would look at and go, what is so offensive about this? But that they were banning those movies. So, um, and then there was this relaxation of the codes and whatnot, but then they came up with the X certification in the 1950s. Uh, this film, you know, could not be seen by anyone under the age of 16. And, and they, they bumped that up to uh, 18, I believe, a few, a few, a little while after they introduced it. So we're looking with The Curse of Frankenstein at 
this movie that was so shocking because of all of its gore. And again, we have to we have to make a distinction between modern gore and what was going on at the time. If we take a look at some of those American movies, were they nearly as gory as the Hammer Horror films? No, they weren't. Um, Curse of Frankenstein showed you know body parts littered all over the place, and so Hammer becomes synonymous with gore to the point where uh, there are a number of sources that I read that said that um, their particular brand of stage blood was called Kensington Gore, but I'm not sure that that's entirely true. I do know this, they used a ton of it. They used a lot of blood in their films. A lot of blood for the time. I mean, if we're going to compare it to, say, the remake of Evil Dead, uh, maybe not. But for the time, very gory and really sexy too. Lots of sex in, uh, in, in the Hammer horror films. Now, again, we look at that and we don't really see it as sex, but as I'm going to talk about today, uh, we're looking at a, a big jump, a big leap forward backward depends on which critic you talk to because this these movies were seen as uh just violating the more the moral conscience consciousness of uh english filmgoers but the curse of frankenstein was a huge huge hit in america with the teen o- the, the, that that teen audience um and it, it I, I've seen a few different uh, numbers for this. You know, like it, 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 it. We can we can sum it up by saying they made it on a shoestring budget, and it made that money back many times over. It was hugely successful from a financial perspective. And so, just as with Universal in 1931, going, hey, let's. They did Dracula, and it was hugely successful. And they were like, right away, let's get this next film out. And so they made. Frankenstein movie. Uh, Hammer Horror does that the other way around. Hammer Horror starts with Frankenstein and follows it up with Dracula. And so we get a sensational shock and thrill show with Dracula. Don't dare see it alone. It's, I love looking at Hammer Horror um, meta, or sorry, paratexts, uh, their posters, uh, the, the marketing strategies for their films, right? The curse of Frankenstein will haunt you forever. Please try not to faint. They, they milked it. Hammer absolutely milked it. They knew exactly what they were doing and getting an X rating. They, were, they, they knew that that was going to work to their advantage, that it was not going to be a problem. And, and they just worked that as hard as they could. So even though they had this pedigree of really, really good filmmaking, they were also doing new things. They were, they were taking something old and doing something new with it. Because Dracula had been done and done and done by this point. Uh, not to the point where it's like there was like 400 movies. Uh, Universal did seven Dracula pictures of one kind or another, and Dracula doesn't appear in them all, but the, Dracula's name would be in the in the title. And then there's like eight other major vampire picks, and that's before we go internationally. Um, but again, uh, Lugosi's Dracula was the Dracula. That was the Dracula. That was the benchmark. That was the one that you had to uh, y- y- you you had to be better than Bela Lugosi's Dracula, who had at this point become a bit of a joke. I mean, the, the final uh, universal pictures, it, excepting Creature from the Black Lagoon, which came out in the same year that Godzilla did. Um, but Universal's last gasp was an Abbott and Costello meets, you know, the, the universal monsters. So once you've brought comedians in, you know that, you know, the franchise has gone south on you. Uh, but along comes Hammer's Dracula, and is going to do things that Lugosi's, 
uh, Browning's Dracula had never done before. Uh, f- for starters, uh, the fangs. You can see the fangs in the posters. Uh, there were no fangs on vampires prior to this. You might be like, are you kidding me? Uh, okay, yeah, there were in Nosferatu, but those are like those ratty little fangs, right? I'm talking about like Dracula fangs as opposed to... And, and we have to know this too. Um, Nosferatu wasn't well known. Browning's Dracula with Lugosi in it was... Whereas Murnau's Nosferatu was right now underground. It was lost, uh, you know, in, in someone's collection somewhere or in a French museum, right? So we don't have Nosferatu in the public imagination, but we do have Lugosi's Dracula in the public imagination. So what we get with Dracula is the first British adaptation of Stoker, interestingly, given that the book was originally released in Britain. The Stoker's novel, Dracula, right? Um, and it's the first period Dracula since Nosferatu. Uh, Browning's Dracula wasn't really a period film, even though it had a lot of that those gothic elements to it. Um, it was semi-contemporary, would probably be the best way to say it. Um, and the movie opens with this very, very bold, um, almost, um, what's the word I want to use here? I don't want to use hyperbolic, bombastic score uh, by Neil Richardson. Like it's got all the boom, and it's like it's like so over the top that for a modern viewer, it's like oh, that's a little, it's a little much, isn't it? But again, for the time, uh, it was distinctive. Um, one of the things that Peter Hutchings argues is that this was the second time that a film score in horror was made that really stood out. Like, of course. Other horror films had music in them, but a a common practice in filmmaking was to just use pre-made music and then set it to the film. And one of the things that Hammer did was that it would hire up-and-coming composers and, and give them an opportunity to, you know, flex their muscles. And Neil, Neil Richardson really does. I have to, like, I, in the Nosferatu lecture, I said that I think that there are elements of Nosferatu that ended up in Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, and I am convinced that uh, Wojciech Kilar, the, the guy who did the music for that film, was using some of the score from Nosferatu uh, in, in, as, an, as an inspiration. I think he was definitely using Neil Richardson's score for Horror of Dracula as well. Oh, and I should say, um, I'm going to keep calling it Horror of Dracula because that's what it was called in North America. But it was just called Dracula in the UK. This is, the U- this is, this is Britain's Dracula. Um, but it, it's widely known as Horror of Dracula as well, just to differentiate it from the 1931 Dracula film. Uh, one of the things that's that's kind of cool about the score, and this is widely known, I I I, I fact check I fact check this um, that the the dun, 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 musical motif that that three note motif that happens over and over and over through the film, pretty much every time Dracula walks in the room or does something terrifying. was meant to mirror the syllables for dracula's name and and consequently this yeah i i want to say i love this movie i absolutely love this movie and i can be a fully sympathetic viewer to it and enjoy it and go ooh, that's kind of creepy at certain points but i 
I can't help but every time that music plays, just kind of sing under my breath, Dracula. <laughs> so maybe, you know, get a group of people together. And, and, and especially if you're, you know, you, you love singing, get your choir together. You know, this is, this would be a good choral viewing. <laughs> every time that that three note uh, motif is played. But the film also opens with a, hey, did you check that we're, co- we're in color moment where we see Dracula's coffin or his, you know, this, uh, this um, tomb and they just splatter blood on it. This bright red, nobody's blood is ever the color of this red, <laughs> but just splattering it all over uh, Dracula's name um, really to announce, hey, you want to know what this film's going to be about? It's going to be about the fact that we can show you the gore for once. We're going to show you some of the stuff that previous vampire movies had only hinted at. And so just like with Cat People, where there are these these innovations, these filmic innovations using shadow and light, and then the introduction of Luton's bus, the jump scare, I think one of the things that set Horror of Dracula apart, along with the pedigree of the filmmakers who came to the work, the Hammer crew who, you know, really knew what they were about in filmmaking. It's also about the advent of, of color being more available. It's not that this was like any, by any stretch of the imagination, the introduction of color, but it was still more expensive to make a color movie. And with the relaxation of these censorship rules, or, you know, you can get an X rating and you can still release your movie. Um, it just means that not everybody can come see it, but boy, everybody's going to want to come see it because, you know, what, what possibly gave it an X rating? Uh, and it's all this gore. And while gore can get tedious in film, when it first gets introduced in a new way, it can be horrifying, um, to audiences who have never seen that before. So we have to remember that the audiences seeing Horror of Dracula had never seen a vampire film in color. And they'd never seen a vampire film where they could show the blood like they do in this film. We can't ignore those things. While we're, while we're running forward trying to come up with some really deep cultural meaning for why this film was horrifying to the people at the time, let's not forget we're looking at teen audiences, we're looking at the introduction of full-color gore and the ability to show some of the things that we'd never seen previously in explicit ways. Um, it doesn't seem explicit to us now, but explicit at the time. Uh, the film begins with uh, a nod to Stoker, the epistolary nature of Stoker's novel with the various diaries and the recordings and whatnot. It'll do that again later on. But we get the diary of Jonathan Harker, this very, this very, very proper British uh, voice of Jonathan Harker in this film. And I, I, I want us to um, contrast this with the opening sequence of Todd Browning's 1931 Dracula. Because again, remember, this would have been very, very strong in the imagination of viewers, both in America and in the UK. Um, so... When Harker's approaching Castle Dracula, we get to see this huge gothic ruin, this huge ruin of a castle up on this crazy precipice. And in the Hammer film, we've got the approach, you know, there's this cart moving along. And, uh, but I mean, the, there's such a difference, right? The, the cart is teeny tiny 
in Browning's film, uh, the wonderful matte painting of Castle Dracula is very imposing. Uh, it's, it's visually stunning <laughs> versus hammer shooting, uh, you know, a normal horse and cart moving through the woods. And you don't get any impression of Castle Dracula looming in the distance. As Jonathan Harker walks up to Castle Dracula in the 1931 film, it's this way up on a hill kind of looking uh, edifice, whereas in Horror of Dracula, it's not all that imposing. Like when Harker crosses the river, we really get an impression of that low budget that Hammer was working with here because he's like, and I felt a rush of cold as I crossed this icy stream. And it mostly looks like someone's running a hose under, like it looks like, you know, like a garden fountain. Um, and I, I mostly say that not to go like, and isn't this a terrible picture? But simply to say that Hammer was always aware of its budgetary constraints worked within those constraints, and yet still produced a really distinctive picture. I also want to say at this point that it, it is demonstrative of the need to recognize that this is not Browning's film. This is not universal horror. This is going to be the horror of Dracula. The castle itself matches the new Dracula in some way, uh, because in this film, Dracula isn't other like he was with Lugosi. Like Lugosi was the outsider. He was the immigrant. He had the, the, the accent, you know, the audience couldn't place because they didn't know. You're not from around here, are you? Um, I'm Dracula, right? Versus Christopher Lee's I'm Dracula, right? This very, very proper British accent. Now he's not just... And, and so now he's not other, he's British. And... He's sort of modern British, to top it all off. Even though this film's taking place in the past, uh, he's, he's modern British. So the introduction of Dracula in the 1931 film with this great imposing staircase with cobwebs all over the place versus the Hammer film. Oh, Dracula got what, like a maid? He's, he's got, he, he must have cleaning staff because this, the, the, Dracula's abode. I don't even want to call it a castle necessarily. Dracula's abode, his house, his, his domicile is spit spot. It's like he's had Mary Poppins around the place. It's super clean. So we have distinct visions of Dracula here. Um, Hammer in many ways going out of their, going out of their way to make sure that they're not, you know, just reifying what had already been done. We get, you know, Christopher Lee coming down and he's he almost got a smile on his face. He looks rather presentable. He doesn't look like a vampire really in a sort of Lugosi way at all. He just looks like, you know, a, a British nobleman or something. We get that moment where, um, you know, he looks over the photo of Harker's sweetheart, who isn't Mina. And we might go, oh, that's not like the book. And you need to just throw that out. Stop even thinking about how Horror of Dracula is or is not like Stoker's novel. Because really what Horror of Dracula is responding to isn't Stoker's novel. It's responding to the popular imagination of the vampire as crafted by these cinematic versions. People knew vampire and Dracula more through the films by this point than they would through Stoker's novel. And this film is reacting to those, uh, the, the, that, that knowledge in all sorts of ways. Um, with Jonathan Harker being a vampire hunter as, 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 uh, as one instance. Um, as I said earlier, this, m these movies, hammer horror movies became known for gore and sex 
And when you look at the early Hammer horror films, not so much the older ones, because by the by the time that Hammer was making their later movies, the censorship codes had gotten to the point where they actually could include uh, full on nudity. Um, and they would because they they were ready to capitalize on whatever they needed to to get people to go and see their films. But these early films, we might look at them and they say, I don't really see how this is it's scandalous. Um, but you might remember that in uh, 1935, James Whale was told, told to cut one of the shots of Elsa Lanchester because it showed too much cleavage. The Bride of Dracula, we don't get three, we just get one. Um, again, budgetary, probably, right? It's easier. We, we can do the same thing we could with three women with just one. Um, we've got this woman with this... Uh, very revealing for film in 1958 dress who, you know, begs for Harker's assistance, begs for his help, and then is later revealed to be a vampire herself. We're probably suspecting that as the audience. Um, but even the way she looks at his neck, there's a hunger there that has a, has a definite sexual nature to it. And then the other thing that we get in this sequence uh, is is the fangs. As I said already, fangs had not been seen before, except with Nosferatu, which hardly anybody knew about. Out come the fangs. She goes to bite Harker's neck. This is distinct from how vampire bitings had been done in other films. Fade out. Uh, swoop of cape. Darkness. Some implication of biting. Even in Nosferatu, we don't really get you know, a sense of like, well, what's, what's he doing down there? Like, you know, he's, he's got his face down by her neck, but we don't see it as explicitly as we do in horror of Dracula in this scene. Um, and then in comes Dracula and he's got blood all over his face. We don't know who he's been out chawing on, but he's been chewing on somebody. Um, and he comes in and Christopher Lee with these crazy contacts, these bloodshot contacts, just the relish with which Lee plays the part is enjoyable. He, clearly loved playing Dracula. He said about it, it brought me a name, a fan club, and a secondhand car, for all of which I was grateful. I just love that quote. Like, you know, he, he said a lot more about how he played Dracula. He tried to play Dracula as a sympathetic character, for example. Um, that, you know, he's he doesn't really want to be a vampire. Uh, but <laughs> in this scene, I don't know, Christopher Lee looks like he really, really wants to be a vampire, and he is really, really digging it. And into the room he comes with this intense energy. And this too is new. Uh, Peter Hutching says, In Hammer's Dracula, nothing ever happens slowly. This movie moves along uh, like a freight train. It's just it, not wasting any time whatsoever. Um, we get the usual lead up with Jonathan Harker, but here he's been changed from unsuspecting innocent into a knowledgeable vampire hunter. And it just creates a concision for the film uh, almost, almost in a in a self-reflexive way, where the Hammer filmmakers are going, "Okay, audiences, we know you know all this stuff about vampires, so we don't really need Jonathan Harker to be this blithering idiot who has no clue what a vampire is." That's one of the reasons that Dracula is so hard to adapt now, is that it's hard for us to imagine anyone going up to a gothic castle and going, well, this is a good spot for real estate, you know, for a real estate meeting. Um, and, and here, Harker gets reimagined, and it allows the film 
a really tight concision of information. The audience already knows a ton about what vampires do, and so they're not going to waste any time sort of slowly getting us up to that point. Nah, forget that. Let's just dive in. And once we dive in, here we've got Christopher Lee leaping across this table with all of this um, athletic energy that previous vampires didn't have. So there is a, a muscularity, a dynamism to this film um, that... I think is is so distinct from other, even just other horror pictures that we've watched in this course, but other representations of vampires. Like Nosferatu's vampire, Count Orlok, I mean, he looks like he'd blow over in a stiff wind. He doesn't look like there's a lot going on there. Like, never mind the stake, hit him with a baseball bat and I think he'll crumble. But Christopher Lee comes into the room and I don't know, he's, he's strong. He's presented as being strong. Now, obviously, this is uh, limited by the technology of the time. If this movie was being made today, we know they would have done a ton of wire work and all sorts of, of cool stuff with, you know, like Dracula wouldn't have just spun the, the bride around. He would have picked her up and chucked her all the way across the room. As it is, he does. He just picks her up and walks out of the room. If you've ever picked a human being up, you know how hard that is and you realize how physically capable Christopher Lee is as an actor here. So there's a physicality to this film that goes beyond just its sexuality to this dynamism, this energy that uh, Lee as Dracula brings to the picture. Cushing does it too, and I'm going to wait to talk about Cushing though. I want to talk momentarily about the way that staking is often interpreted in academic circles. There is a whole... Uh, raft of of interpretations of the staking moments in vampire movies that is interpreted in a freudian manner and if you know anything about freud you're, you'll know where this is going the stake stands in for a phallus so it's a penis and as soon as you penetrate well that's rape but as hutchings notes not every instance of a staking has that uh, has that uh, undertone or subtext to it and even though Hammer would be known for sexuality in its films. I don't think the staking sequences in the movie are particularly sexual. You might find that that is different, but I just I, I sort of want to head that off at the pass because I think it's a reductive way of watching the film. It's like, well, now the stakes are all penises, and every time this happens, this is what this means. Rather than paying attention to what's going on in the film within the context of of other horror movies, other vampire movies. How is this film distinct from those other works? And I love how, and this too, I think, uh, is is indicative of what you know Hutchings is saying, um, is that when Harker, you know, this again blows my mind. I remember when I watched this for the first time. I was like, oh, I can't, I can't even. I don't. I did not realize that Jonathan Harker would be a vampire hunter. But it, it's it's cool. It's a, it's a neat revision. Um, but this shadow of Harker on the wall when he stakes the female vampire, I think is a really, really great way of distancing it and taking it away from this, like, how is this a particularly sexualized scene? Um, it doesn't focus in on the woman's decolletage except after that initial shot. And again, I think that was just sensationalism to sort of grab the teen audiences. One of the other things Hutchings notes over and over again about this film and other Hammer films involving vampires is that night comes almost instantaneously. And we need to be careful about watching these movies with a, well, 
that stretches the boundaries of, you know, my uh, suspension of willing disbelief. This movie, again, like Hutchings says, in, in Hammer's Dracula, nothing ever happens slowly, including the sun going down. One moment, the sun is up. The next moment, the sun is down. The film needs it to move that fast because the rest of the film is moving that fast. Although there are a few scenes where I think they, they move the movie so fast they realize, ooh, we've got a lot of time left to fill. Let's do a blood transfusion scene. Um, but Harker looks up. He's got this look of horror on his face. And I, one of the coolest, I think, sequence or shots of the film is where the camera is looking out through the door to the cellar where Harker has just staked the female vampire. And we can see uh, a window. The, and it's barred. We can see the, the light of a window, not the actual window. We just see um, the light reflected on a wall. And there's these bars. And as Dracula comes down the stairs, those bars just took, 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 get filled with darkness. And it's so well done. Wonderful generation of suspense leading up to the moment when Dracula steps into the shot and stands at the top of the stairs. Now, that's a horror cliche almost at this point the killer at the top of the stairs but it's so great because it's a camera shot that has the the viewer in a low position so dracula is, is imposing and christopher lee is already a tall dude but this just makes him even taller right same same some of the same techniques they use with karloff and he then he just goes to shadow we don't see him bite harker and we might say well how come we don't get to see harker get bit well this film will innovate with the whole male becoming vampire by Dracula's bite in that that had never been done before in film. They hadn't shown that before. So the implication of this somewhat intimate act, uh, which as I've already noted, gets, you know, there, there are these sexual uh, subtext undertones, overtones to it um, is done off screen. But at the same time, we're going to see Harker in a coffin pretty soon and we'll know what happened. At this point, we don't really know. And I think that's the other reason that Hammer does this at this point is to leave us in suspense as we shift over to the other vampire hunter, Van Helsing, who is nothing like other Van Helsings either. He's robust. He's in the know. And we get a really cool uh, innovation on the let's talk to the peasants about vampires scene because Van Helsing doesn't come in and they go, ah, you need to be careful about going up to Castle Dracula. He walks in and he says, listen, I know what the gig is. And they're like, oh, you don't want to go messing with things you don't understand. And he says, oh, no, I totally understand. Um, Stacey Abbott in uh, her book, Celluloid Vampires, Life After Death in the Modern World. Um, she says uh, Van Helsing knows in this film rather than believes. Other Van Helsings believe in vampires. This guy knows. He's been around the block. He's probably killed a few other vampires. Dracula isn't his first rodeo. And so it's a neat innovation on, on that. And it, and again, presents us with a distinct Dracula film. Cushing's Van Helsing is one of the most capable Van Helsings I've ever seen on the screen, including Hugh Jackman with his, you know, stake shooting guns. That's a very physically capable uh, Van Helsing, but I find this one more compelling for, for a number of reasons. Um, Peter Cushing, by the way, uh, some of you may know uh, as Grand Moff Tarkin from uh, the original Star Wars movie, here playing the very, very capable vampire hunter, uh, the ever alert and ready vampire hunter. I think that's one of the things that really defines Cushing's portrayal of Van Helsing is, is just how alert he is. He's like a bird. He's constantly looking around like, I know what's going on. Um, 
and uh, and here he is in the know. He's absolutely in the know. He goes up to Castle Dracula, finds Jonathan Harker with fangs protruding, and we know, oh no, Jonathan's been... Uh, but that doesn't stop Van Helsing from doing the very, very same thing that, you know, uh, Harker uh, could not to Dracula, um, or did not, I guess we should say. Uh, so, you know, we, we get the mentor coming to the, probably the learner. I mean, this is probably Jedi and Padawan here, uh, mentor and student, uh, and, and Van Helsing having to end him. And this jumps now at this point to the Homewood home, uh, and audiences familiar with Browning's Dracula would be like, oh, we know what's going on here, but we don't because the the, the nature of the characters has been shifted around. Uh, the relationship between them has been shifted around. Arthur is um, Lucy's uh, brother now instead of her paramour. And uh, Arthur is, is going to be wed to Mina. Um, Jonathan Harker is completely out of the story. And the, again, this comes back to this idea of concision. Keeping the, the language of the film so tight that you can just keep it rollicking along. Don't, don't clutter the screen with too many characters. Um, because that's not going to be good for our demographic, right? The teen audience wasn't interested in that kind of complication. Um, and again, this wasn't marketed directly at the teen audience, but they were definitely exploiting that, that, that opportunity. Uh, incidentally, the fellow who plays Arthur Holmwood here is another Alfred. Uh, I've said earlier that we, we had an Alfred, um, in cat, cat people. And here we get another one. This is uh, the, uh, the uh, so Alfred Batman's butler um, and uh, Arthur, or sorry, um, the, the character uh, who plays him here, or the actor who plays him here would um, play Alfred in the Tim Burton uh, versions of Batman because whenever Tim Burton could get uh, one of the <laughs> people who populated the films he loved in, in his youth and he loved Hammer Horror films than he would. So Michael Goh ends up uh, playing Alfred um, and appearing in, in other uh, Tim Burton films as well. We see that Mina is sick. She's been sick. Something's wrong. Uh, you know, and, and the, the viewer who's in the know is, you know, probably already aware. Oh yeah. And we, you know, it's, it's, it's Dracula. And we, we get clarification of that with the uh, puncture wounds on her neck. Uh, but what we get in Horror of Dracula, which is distinct from other adaptations, um, is that Mina wants Dracula to show up. We know that this is bad for her. She doesn't. There's an echo of what we saw in Nosferatu with the, you know, welcoming the vampire into the room. But the difference here is that Mina's not welcoming Dracula into the room so that she can, you know, fool him into sticking around until dawn. She wants his presence and that's distinct. So again, that's that that sexuality of uh, sexualization of Dracula. Dracula is not being played by an outsider. He's being played by a very modern looking, very British looking man. And for the time, a conventionally handsome man as well. One of the other things that's a distinctive about uh, Hammer Horror is that they like to throw in uh these moments of comedy and sure this is this is similar to you know bride of uh, bride of frankenstein where we had a mix of comedy and horror but there wasn't always these mixes of comedy and horror and there certainly wasn't that mix in the same way where we go from scenes where you know someone that where there's blood all over the place or there's a body part sitting and then they cut away to someone buttering their toast in fact um i'm, I'm saying buttering their toast but it was uh they actually used the um code word past the marmalade for those types of scenes because it was usually that kind of juxtaposition like someone has their head chopped off 
past the marmalade, uh, which again I think um, Coppola uses in a in a certain shot in his Dracula film. So we get these moments of of comedy, like when you know the the hired help around the house walks in to talk to uh, Van Helsing, and he says, "But I, I could have swore I heard you talking to someone." And and Van Helsing says, with you know, without even explaining what he's saying, "Well, of course, I was talking to myself." Um, and there's this just this little moment of comedy, or the um, the the uh, the the funeral caretaker, right? The, um, the the fellow who you know takes them in and shows them the coffins and is like, I just can't believe where it's gone. He's got a few jokes to throw us. Uh, the guy who runs the toll booth along the uh, the road, uh, a moment of physical comedy, a very odd, oddly timed moment of physical comedy, right when the movie ramps up to its climactic chase scene, uh, cutting away to this, you know, really goofy moment. But that was Hammer. That was one of the things they did. But the joke that's made about um, Van Helsing talking to himself is a reference to Van Helsing using a phonograph, very early uh, type of phonograph, to record his observations about the vampire. And it's this moment that the film gives us exposition. If you've never seen a vampire movie, we're going to catch you up on what a vampire, you know, what a vampire's weaknesses are. Um, but this gets juxtaposed with the scenes with Mina, and I think that that keeps the movie moving along at this energetic, fast pace. Even though the scenes with Van Helsing slow things down, um, the the intercutting that happens here, the cross-cutting, sorry, with uh, the the scenes with uh, Mina and Dracula, keep keep the uh, keep the film moving along. And there's just these little gasps where we cut away to Cushing as Van Helsing saying, you know, I must destroy this creature, uh, and we as the audience going, yeah, you need to do it right now. You actually need to go and you know you need to save. You need to save, uh, not Mina. Sorry, I keep saying Mina, but it's Lucy. Um, and there's this two shot. There's there's these two shots that are right next to each other. We get the camera pushing in right up close to uh, Cushing as Van Helsing right before it cuts to Christopher Lee as Dracula. And their center, right center of the shot, definitely a, hey, these, are, these, these two will face each other later on. You know, these two are ancient... Um, adversaries. Lucy's face in anticipation of Dracula entering her boudoir or her bedchamber. She wants him there. This is not a, oh, horror. Uh, you know, like a, oh, I wanted it until you got here and now I don't want it anymore. No, no, there's still the wanting. There's still that desire. So that's that infusion of sexuality into this film. And I got to say that the actor, the actress that they chose to play Lucy is kind of horrifying when she gets fangs. I find her sort of elfin gamine features um, creepy once she's got fangs uh, locked into uh, locked into her, her countenance. Her smiling at the child. That scene with the child, uh, you know, where she's, you know, Aunt Lucy, Aunt Lucy right? Uh, I, I found rather unsettling. We get a wonderful performance from this actress. I think maybe it's it's over the top, but at the same time, the the rapidity with which she reacts to Cushing shoving the crucifix into her face, shoving that cross right into the shot, uh, is wonderful. There's no there's no um, lack of speed. And in some ways, it echoes the speed with which Lugosi slaps down a mirror in the 1931 uh, Browning version of Dracula. 
The staking is graphic in a way that the earlier staking was not. Still, I don't think sexual in any way. There's no way that uh, Van Helsing's relationship with with Lucy can be construed that way. And and Arthur Holmwood is her brother. There's really none of that going on here. This film isn't about the isn't about sublimated sexuality. This film is like, no, we're gonna put our sex out where you can see it. And we're going to put our gore out where you can see it. And I mean, if you really want to go looking for a subtext, you can. But our goal was to entertain. Jimmy Sangster, who was uh, the writer on Horror of Dracula, has said this. I read somewhere that Hammer's first mummy film dealt with, among other things, the tragedy of colonialism. I only wish I could go along with that. I wrote a simple, straightforward horror movie. Let's face it, neither Hammer or Jimmy Sangster were in the business of moralizing. We were in the business of making a living by entertaining people, and we did that by attempting to frighten them. Uh, that doesn't mean that we can't read a subtext into these films. I just think that we need to be careful about which subtexts we we, we choose for that. Uh, we've got the burn mark. Again, this is all explicit gore for the period. The burn mark on her head, um, which was probably very tame for us. I mean, we're, we're looking at a post Buffy the Vampire Slayer where all of this stuff was done on television uh, during prime time. But in 1958, we were a long way from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, and the horror that's on, I think, uh, the actress's face as well shows us that this isn't meant to be read in any way other than um, a really, really awful moment where, you know, evil is destroyed. Good and evil are very clearly demarcated in the Hammer horror films. This is not a complex moral landscape like a Val Luton film. Peace washes over the features. I mean, her hair is pristine after she's been staked, everything. It's just a re everything is returned to goodness. And so maybe if we're going to do a deeper read of the Hammer horror films, we would do it from the perspective of a fairly conservative and simplistic view of, you know, good versus evil and uh, not much in the way of sympathy for the monster or complicating those things. Once again, the idea that the sex was right out there where we could see it has to be understood within the context of the time. And, uh, you, you know, there's only so much that can be shown on the screen X rating or not in 1958. Um, when the actress who plays Mina comes in from having been bit by Dracula later in the film, um, she was apparently told by Terrence Fisher, the director of the movie, because uh, she said, how do you want me to play this? How am I supposed to play me walking into the room? And he said, I want you to imagine you had one whale of a sexual night, the one of your sexual experience. So basically come in looking like you've got a serious glow on. And she does, right all the way through that scene. And so there is a sort of overt sexuality to the scene that may simply look to us like, well, she's, you know, she's just acting. It's just her face. But remember where we just were with cat people. In an era when, you know, let's have uh, married couples sleeping in separate beds. That the TV show I Love Lucy was going to be groundbreaking for showing a married couple having a bed that they both slept in. And this film has this woman walking in from having been bitten by a vampire looking really satisfied. You know, so that, that there's we have to understand the nature of what is explicit here. Like showing Dracula coming into the bedroom of these women is explicit and in a way that, that wasn't normally represented in film at the time. 
um, the the posture of Dracula towards Mina when he comes into her room and the fact that she's wearing uh, a, a uh, some lingerie really for its day um, that bears her shoulders. Look at the production design for this film and you'll see that Mina's costumes are always high collared covering everything up and then in this scene her shoulders are bare and that's somewhat scandalous for film at this point but i think we also need to note the way that um the actress playing mina and christopher lee are looking at each other in this sequence he's not looking at her with the same sort of predatory stare that we would see from other vampires, Lugosi and some of his, you know, uh, some of the people who followed him in the role. Um, Lee, the way that he touches her face in this scene, if we didn't know he was about to bite her, we would just assume they were about to have sex or that he was just going to kiss her. So there is an eroticism to this scene that was unprecedented in horror as well. As I said earlier, this film moves along at such a heady clip that, um, you know, these movies were supposed to run around 90 minutes long. And I honestly feel like the um, blood transfusion sequence was like, just play it out as long as we can, because we've got to fill some time because we've been, you know, the rest of the film is just moving along like a like a like a like a a freight train. Um, And so they slow it down here. But this is this is cool to me, because, uh, again, this is a moment uh, that I think gets uh, redone in Coppola's uh, Dracula. And, and harkens back to Stoker's Dracula, which, by the way, and I just want to say this, if I'm going to say anything about the novel, was a like a techno-thriller for its day. Every piece of technology that Stoker talks about in Dracula was brand new. It was cutting edge. And the, the book even takes place in the future of when Stoker's, uh, when, it, when it came out. So it'd be more like a Michael Crichton thriller than a gothic horror. But we think of it as gothic horror now, I think largely because of films like Horror of Dracula, which are looking backwards at a time when this wasn't, this was no longer contemporary. The concerns that it's even looking at aren't particularly contemporary. We pick things back up again right away because during that transfusion scene, we've got the maid, the maid who screws things up earlier in the film by taking the garlic out of Lucy's room, allowing Dracula to get in. She's like, oh, I've, you know, you know, she's been telling me to not go down into the cellar. And right again, right away again, Peter Cushing, alert and ready, ever energetic, dashes out of the room. He's dashing everywhere. He runs everywhere. I don't feel like Van Helsing walks much. He's, 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 a, he's a runner, without a doubt, you know. Um, check that guy for a Fitbit. Runs over to the coffin, checks it out, and then inexplicably in, in comes Dracula. And I, I got to tell you about what Peter Hutchings says at this point about this. He says, where is Dracula coming from when he returns to the cellar? Has he really just been wandering aimlessly through the Holmwood house, somehow escaping detection? Um, what, what this, what the sequence lacks in narrative logic. And this is, this is the key. What the sequence lacks in narrative logic, it more than makes up for with a, with dynamism and energy. If we watch this film, we look for plot holes. My God, we'll find them. They're all over the place. Like they're, they really are. And this is, this is the most glaring one. But at the same time, it's one of the most exciting sequences of the film. When this happened, I was like, woo, because the film is working with a really strong sense of dynamic. That sequence that comes right before this with the transfusion scene slows everything down. And then this scene picks it all back up and gets us going again, ready for a chase scene, which is cool because Stoker's novel ends with a chase scene and a lot of Dracula movies don't. 
A lot of Dracula movies don't have that chase at the end. And even though this isn't the same epic level chase that that happens in the novel and then happens again in For Francis Ford Coppola's version of the Dracula uh, narrative, Dracula story, um, Horror of Dracula still gives us a chase. It's, again, truncated. That sense of concision is spatial as well in this film because we're not looking at um, Transylvania all the way to England. Everything happens in where, we don't know, some vague Germanic European area uh, with places with, you know, names like Karlstadt and Klausenberg. And I looked up Karlstadt and it's in Sweden and this isn't in Sweden. Uh, it's, it is what um, many of the writers that I, I looked at in preparation for this lecture say is it's just sort of a never-never land that we're inhabiting. And there's an almost fairy tale aspect to the way, not fairy tale in you know the sense of that actual type of narrative, but in the long ago and far away sense, the once upon a time sense, the don't think too hard about this sense. Um, so we could pick this film apart from a Where's Dracula Bean, and Peter Hutchings is doing that in a tongue-in-cheek way. He absolutely loves this movie, so he's not shooting it down. Um, but it 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 it's this is simply meant, I think to from a cinematic perspective ramp things up again get us get us going give us that final chase which allows us to have that you know that brief moment of comedy as well before we get to the castle so there's a chase through you know through the land and then through the house culminating in this moment in the library where we get this furious fight and in capturing stills from the movie, you can tell it's Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing who are having these fights. These are not stuntmen. This physicality is these two stage actors, these Shakespearean trained act actors just going at it with all this energy and this power in this sequence in a way that had never been done before. Van Helsing, and, and really, unless you count the Hugh Jackman movie, I don't think we've ever seen Van Helsing fight Dracula like this. Uh, I might be wrong about that, but I haven't in all of the Dracula movies that I've seen. Usually everything's a little more sedate or they rely on light as, as he ultimately needs to. Van Helsing ultimately needs to rely on the sun. But, you know, look at, look at uh, Cushing's positioning in that sequence. Um, the very fact that he jumps up on the table in the library, runs down this huge table and then jumps into the air and pulls the curtains down to allow the light in, gives this scene this, this great sense of, again, dynamism, energy, muscularity, power. Um, and, and that, those are the, those, those words just kept, you know, coming to me, uh, not only because I read Hutchings, but because as I was watching this film, I'm like, it's really exciting. It's like an action movie of Dracula. So we got that sun coming in, Dracula down on the floor, trying to stay out of the direct beam. What does Van Helsing do? And this was Cushing's idea. Apparently he picks up two candlesticks and fashions across, and this will get done a gazillion times after this in so many vampire movies. Like if you've got two sticks, if you've got HB pencils, if you've got chopsticks, you've got crosses. Um, so you don't have to worry about vampires. And and the look on Cushing's face in this sequence, just desperation. Van Helsing um, facing, you know, the, the, the worst vampire he ever has. The movie doesn't really state that, but it seems like it is because he, he was on the ropes, not shortly before this. Christopher Lee's performance in this sequence is great too as the increasingly crippled Dracula. Uh, incidentally, the version that uh, my students have watched for class is not the version that contains a couple seconds that were cut 
um, but they were restored to certain uh, new home video versions, but they were cut for all the, the original prints where once Dracula's in the light and he starts to crumble, there was a scene where he digs his fingers into his face and like is like sloughing off his flesh. Uh, and it's it's a really go- it's, it's it's a gruesome scene. You can check it out on YouTube if you'd like. But uh, Van Helsing pushes Dracula into the light by push- putting the, the the power of the cross right before him. Right. And again, they they don't have to do a bunch of explanations here because the audience knows how this works. Um, the uh, model work for Dracula crumbling, of course, is a bit is a bit hokey, right? For for modern audiences, used to photorealistic spe- special effects, but for its day, creepy, gross, disturbing. We we uh, we have to keep that in mind. With fine the final shot, that final shot of the ashes blowing away and Dracula's ring just sitting there. Uh, in and just as a as a side note, I was I was struck by um, wondering. I was, stru- I was struck wondering if this was what uh, the director of the um, Dino De Laurentiis production of uh, Flash Gordon in the 1980s was going for with one of his last shots of the film. That made me start to wonder if Max von Sydow as Ming the Merciless is, is, is a reference in some way to the uh, sexual and violent um, version of Dracula that we get here in Horror of Dracula. Uh, so, you know, what's what's the horror that we're finding here? Is it, you know, is it the is it the horror of subtext? Do we need to look beneath? Uh, was there something going on in in society that this film was tapping into with its narrative? And my answer is no, I don't think so. What horrified audiences? What titillated audiences? What brought them to see it? What um, made it a a landmark in horror was the introduction of, if we can call them this, the innovation of the explicit gore, the explicit sexuality of this film, both of which were horrifying to critics who saw all of this as a threat to the moral fabric of of England. Um, one of the critics said this about the film. I went to see Dracula, a hammer film, prepared to enjoy a nervous giggle. And right there you can see what people thought of as hor- at, about horror at this point, that it was something like, eh, it's amusing, but not horrifying, right? Laughable nonsense. And then that, that with a question mark, like laughable nonsense, not this film, not when it is filmed, said this critic, like this with realism. And that's interesting for us as, as modern viewers, I suppose, to find out that a contemporary film critic saw this film as being filmed in a realistic fashion and with the modern conveniences of color and the widescreen. This film is a degradation of cinema entertainment. And the star reported that it's probably the best acted, directed, and photographed horror film yet made. Now, combine those two things. One critic saying this, this is probably the best acted, directed, and photographed horror film ever made. And we have to sort of check our own critical view from, you know, where we are and and say, okay, well, if I accept that and I synthesize that with what this other critic said, where they went expecting a nervous giggle and instead got what they perceived as realism. That's a that's a backhanded compliment. Whether they meant to compliment the movie or not, what they said was Hammer pulled off what it set out to do, which was to take these films, to take these stories as seriously as they could, but also to push the boundaries of what was acceptable on the screen. And that brought a fresh infusion, all pun intended, of bloody horror 
to film. Now, the rise of Hammer Horror culminates in a fall as well as it did with Universal. Uh, they start out really strong. They make some really great pictures. Um, but they, they lapse into a situation where all of the innovations that they brought in didn't last very long. Uh, people began to know what the Hammer Horror formula was. And it became associated with B-movies uh, even more strongly than, than it did at the outset of, of their, their run. Um, they're, they're, they're now being taken far more seriously by critics like Peter Hutchings. Um, increasingly, Hammer Horror is getting the attention that I, I think it deserves. I wanted it in the course because it, it acts as a, as a really, really cool contrast to the films that have come before and places us in a position that pivots towards Night of the Living Dead in a way that looking at a lot of the horror from America at this time wouldn't have. Because Howard Hawks' The Thing from Another World was a studio picture with a lot of money behind it. Horror of Dracula was a studio picture, and that hammer was a studio, but they were a tiny studio. They were the little studio that could. And they prefigure the kind of independent filmmakers that we're going to see walking into the horror arena and doing battle with major studios and winning. Next week, we start taking a look at one of those independent filmmakers with George A. Romero and Night of the Living Dead. I'll see you then for more horror. <laughs>